Welcome, listeners, to another edition of The Learning Curve. This is Kara Kandal here with my fearless co-host, Mr. Gerard Robinson. Gerard, a lot to talk about today. It's an important month. And before we get there, I would also like to say, Gerard, it's Groundhog Day. It is. I mean, I it's Groundhog Day. Can I just say it again and again? It's like Groundhog Year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Punxsutawney Phil, but, you know, in, in the darn Groundhog, he just he went back in the hole, didn't he? Oh, well. Did we expect anything different? I mean, maybe I got the news wrong, but could was that not predictable? I mean, I just feel like in a in a year of Groundhog Days, <laughs> this does not hold the same the same place in my heart. Um, but to the good people of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, thanks for keeping up the tradition. Um, yes. How's your How's your Groundhog Day going? <laughs> well, actually, I had no idea it was Groundhog Day, so I would say it was going well. Um, maybe Until you found out it was Groundhog Day. See if, my, see if I can see my own shadow. But other than that, I have had no idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> nothing matters anymore, Gerard. Nothing matters. No, there there are a couple of things that matter. We've got a we've got a great guest on today. I mean, I know we always have great guests, but this is we've got somebody on today who's going to talk about uh, a lot of things, including how Boston's uh, Catholic schools have in fact remained open since September. <laughs> and Imagine that. Students. Face to face, right? Which leads into my story of the week, which, you know, we've been sort of avoiding talking about this too much, but let's just go right there because, man, Chicago, I mean, boy, oh boy, Chicago in the battle to reopen schools. Um, I lived in Chicago. I went to school in Chicago, University mm-hmm. of Chicago. I love the city. Boy, are the schools always sort of in trouble? I mean, there's, a, you know, like any place, good schools, but also not so great schools. And this reopening battle, though, has just been, in some ways, I think, emblematic of the fight that's going on nationally. And what's so striking to me, Gerard, it's it's between, obviously, it's the unions versus, you know, the city. Um, and, and, you know, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, you got to give this woman credit. <laughs> she just keeps fighting away against a formidable... Um, opposition, shall we say. Um, The thing that kills me is that, you know, as it's reported in the news, and I'm not saying I know what the conversations are behind closed doors, Mm -hmm. we have so little information about parents and kids and should they not factor into the decision. But as this um, has been going on, it looks like just as of today, and now for our listeners, we are recording this the day before our release. So it's what what is the date, Gerard? Is it February 2nd? Must be. It is. Mm-hmm. 2021, Groundhog Day. Um, you know, it said it sounds like they're making a little bit more progress in that Lori Lightfoot and CPS director, Dr. Janice Jackson. There, There's an agreement on one other issue and substantial framework on a, a substantial progress on agreeing upon a reopening framework. And they've actually had to call a $48 cooling off period. So, I, you know, I think that there's some hope, but... On the one hand, you can understand why teachers are scared. I think that that's mm-hmm. we need to we need to acknowledge that why some families are scared, especially. But just the lack of movement in any direction to serve kids is what's really frustrating in this dialogue. And I have to I have to say I don't know how you'll feel about this comment, but uh, a friend of mine, uh, Nathan Hoffman, on Twitter pointed out the other day. He said, "Is it so interesting that?" 
You know, it's two women of color leading the charge to open up Chicago's public schools, which serve a lot of kids of color against one. Um, sorry, friends, you know, white guy who, <laughs> who seems to think that he knows everything. And I said, well, I don't know that that's exactly the case, Nathan, but it is just um, a layered debate, a very layered issue. And um, I don't know, Gerard, are we seeing this in other places? To the same extent? Well, we are. Um, maybe not to the same extent in part because the labor dynamics of Chicago and the type of in-your-face politics that have been a part of negotiation and implementation in that city for over 25 years has something to do with it. But other big cities and big school systems have had challenges as well, whether they're in a right-to-work state or not. Um, the Chicago situation is, is also interesting in part because when we think of Chicago, first of all, it's a great city. And they've got some wonderful students who graduated from the traditional public school system. And they're great teachers. I happen to know some of them who are doing great work. But when you think of Chicago, you immediately think of violence. You think of people who are being killed, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, 15 people in a weekend or more. And there are other stories. And so when you hear Chicago public schools, we don't often hear about the great things they're doing for students and the number of children who are leaving poverty-stricken homes, finding themselves going to college, starting businesses, or going to the military. But this is just, you know, par for the course. Teachers naturally should be concerned about their health, absolutely. But if parents are saying, listen, we want you to open schools, I don't think the parents are saying we don't care about teachers' health because their kids have to go to the same school inside the same building. So this is a part about, this is just a part of politics uh, in a place like Chicago. Uh, we'll see what happens. You know, it raises a question about whether or not something uh, Bill uh, Bennett uh, decades ago said when he was secretary of education about Chicago public schools and politics and what it'll look like. I think we'll find uh, something will happen within the next month or so. But it is what it is. I can't wish oh. I could tell you it wasn't about politics and adults, but it is. So. Yeah, that's bottom line. Bottom yep. line. Yep. So my story is a little different. Uh, it is about education, but it's also in line of what was it like uh, to be a black teacher in the history of American education? Uh, this is African American History Month, and I'm looking at an article written by Professor Jarvis R. Givens, who is a professor at Harvard University uh, and the author of Fugitive Pedagogy, Carter G. Woodson and the Art of Black Teaching, published 2021 by Harvard University Press. And he just spent some time in his article uh, from January 29th just talking about the role of Black teachers and the art of teaching while being Black, another term we use now, in schools, uh, segregated, often under-resourced, and what they had to go through to create a new movement for Black education. And he takes a particular focus on a guy named Dr. Carter G. Woodson. He is the founder of African History Month. He's also someone born in Virginia. Many of you know I live in the Charlottesville area. He was born in 1875 near New Canton, Virginia. He was the son of formerly enslaved Africans. All of them believed strongly in education. You figure he's born 1875, two years before the major compromise that ended Reconstruction as we know it. They still believed in education. You know, no matter who was in the White House, black people wanted to make sure they used education to move away from the outhouse. And so 
he took his school seriously, and in 1907, he obtained a bachelor's degree from the University of Chicago. And in 1912, he received a PhD from Harvard University, second African-American to receive one from that institution, first being, of course, W.E.B. Du Bois. And he created, again, what was at one point Negro History Day, became uh, Negro History Month, and now Black History Month. He picked that month because Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, two people he uh, admired, their birthdays are in February. Uh, but he also thought it was important just to talk about the role Black people have played, not only in U.S. history, but in world civilization. And so uh, it's a good read. Uh, I'm also going to pick up the book as well. I've been a big fan of Carter G. Woodson's work when I was a uh, community college student in the late 1980s at uh, El Camino College in Los Angeles, I read his book, The Miseducation of the Negro. And there are 10 books that helped change how I thought about myself and about life. That's one of them. But I, but trust me, that book could be the miseducation of American people, because I think many of us have been miseducated and treated like Negroes in unique ways in our system of education. So worth a read. Yeah, thank you for that story. You know, one of the things that makes me think about is I think what's so often lost in the education, air quote, reform conversation, right? And and indeed in in teacher education in in ed schools, and I can just say that because I taught in one for a while, um, is is the idea that, you know, we often talk about the state of education for black children in this country as being in dire straits and everything's horrible. And and it's true that far too many children in this country do not mm-hmm. have the opportunities that they need. But what we fail to do is talk about the history of education and talk about the history of black education very specifically and the wonderful schools that, um, that black principals led and black teachers taught in and that mm-hmm. were centers of community and that, that, you know, really raised children. And then when we Brown v. Board, you know, for as important as that decision was, um, and I think maybe we've talked about this once or twice before, part of what was lost were probably more than a gen- generation, maybe generations of black school leaders black teachers, you know, Mm -hmm. the folks in the community who were doing the real work. And now we all sort of scratch our heads and say, well, gee, you know, why is it that um, so many of our black children are learning from white middle-class women sort of a thing? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it's, um, and it's, it's like, folks, let's, let's think about history and the decisions that we've made and well-intentioned as they were and important as they were, the adverse impacts uh, they had on the community in terms of implementation. So, I appreciate that story, and I hope that um, I hope that especially our younger listeners, because I'm sure we have a lot of them. Um, Absolutely, we'll we'll think about that, Gerard. Okay, I'm sure we'll have lots more uh, good stuff as this month goes on related to Black history and education. Uh, but coming up, Gerard, we are going to be speaking with Tom Carroll, superintendent of um, Archdiocese of Boston Catholic Schools, and mm-hmm. he's going to talk to us just about a range of things from how uh, Catholic schools in Boston perform to how, as I said at the outset, they have managed to remain open, yes, indeed, since September 2020. So coming up right after this. Learning Curve listeners, we have us today somebody I'm really excited to talk to because not only is he here in our hometown, but boy, 
He is leading the charge to do some very important things for kids right now. We're speaking with Tom Carroll, Secretary of Education and Superintendent of Schools for the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Boston. The Archdiocese serves over 31,000 students across more than 100 schools. Tom is also the founder of the USA Workforce Coalition, a group of nearly 300 organizations focused on adopting federal legislation that addresses the nation's skills gap and expands educational opportunities. Before joining the Archdiocese of Boston, Carol was president of the New York-based Invest in Education Foundation since its founding in 2012. He served as New York Governor George Pataki's deputy director for regulatory reform and played a leading role in the adoption of New York's charter school law. Over the course of his career, Tom has led a network of high-quality urban schools, renovated and, and, and constructed school facilities, no small feat if you've ever had to be involved with that, and advocated on behalf of Catholic schools. He's raised millions of dollars in private donations for Catholic school scholarships. Carol holds his bachelor's and master's degree from the University of Albany, and he and his wife, Claudia, this is the most important part, have two children. Maybe we'll learn whether or not they, they attended Catholic school. Tom, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thank you. Happy to be with you. We're happy to have you. So, you know, we can't start this conversation without um, a plug for Pioneer's new book, which I which I co-edited, um, just released last week. Um, the book is called The Vision of Hope. And, and what we do in the book is we concentrate on Massachusetts K-12 Catholic schools. We look at how diverse they are. We look at who they serve. And we look at um, performance. We look at academic performance. Now, I'm sure you have a lot to say on this topic, but could you frame for our listeners how successful Catholic schools are in Boston, why they're so successful, and then let's talk a little bit about uh, what's been going on in this past year with COVID. Sure. Uh, the, the value proposition for Catholic schools is really pretty straightforward. It's one uh, that we believe that children are created in the image and likeness of God and that we will uh, treat them as individuals. And the kind of the core of school choice, if you will, is treating children as individuals and not everybody all the same that learns the same. But there are also a, a central purpose of Catholic schools is evangelization of children. And that's a core part of what we do. It attracts not just Catholics, but also people who are not Catholic, who are attracted that faith is at the center of a school in a way that you're not allowed to do in a public school secular setting. And that's attractive to a lot of parents. The second is we make a promise on the quality of education. That Catholic schools for a very long time, in part because of discipline and structure, discipline, structure, intentionality of what we're doing on the academic side, we tend to uh, have better results in most markets, not all markets. And certainly in Massachusetts, as your book shows, we're outperforming uh, public schools in Massachusetts. And that is for people not from Massachusetts to understand that Massachusetts consistently has had the highest performing public schools in the country. I'm from New York, which has lots of good schools, also has a lot of bad schools. Um, but it, it says a lot that Massachusetts has consistently been at the top of the heap. So for your book to conclude that the Catholic schools across Massachusetts are outperforming the public schools in Massachusetts says quite a lot. And so that's essentially why parents come to our schools. They know that they'll get quality academics and they know that they'll get a faith-based environment. 
Tom, before I ask you to talk a little bit more about uh, about the current moment, could you explain for our listeners, like, so a lot of people will say, and you might get this question a lot, I know I do, sort of like, well, you know, Catholic schools might outperform district schools, they might outperform other really good schools, but they're serving a different kind of kid, a different kind of family, those parents are more motivated because they sought out the Catholic school. You know, you mentioned that um, Catholic schools even though they're rooted in the Catholic faith, and that's something that distinguishes them, they serve people from various backgrounds, lots of different backgrounds. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, Catholic school demographics and, and does sure. that influence performance and outcomes? Yeah. So it, it, it depends what is, what a school looks like demographically, obviously depends what neighborhood it's located in. That's true. Obviously of public schools it's true of charter schools and it's true of Catholic schools as well. But the Catholic Church has uh, a unique history, and this is a history that goes back even before there were uh, Catholics, any Catholic schools in the United States, which is we have a commitment to serve the poor and the dispossessed. And we never in any services that the Catholic Church provides anywhere in the world, there's no Catholic card that you have to show before we provide services. So if you're poor, if you're somebody who needs help uh, on immigration services, if you come up to a soup kitchen or you're a homeless person seeking shelter or you're somebody looking for a school uh, for your son or daughter, uh, we do not require anyone to be Catholic. So we're Catholic. Most people know what that means. And we're, we stay with fidelity uh, with our faith. But part of our faith is the word Catholic itself literally means the translation of that word is universal. So as a result, we take people, we make an extra effort to get people from all walks of life. And we have a very substantial commitment to serving the poor. And we raise a very substantial amount of money, both through the pews and various collections, but also in the philanthropic dollars we raise to make sure that we're able to serve kids from poor and working class uh, neighborhoods and families. And I think in many ways, the surest ticket out of poverty is for a child to get into a Catholic school. Because we take that child, no matter what their backgrounds, whether the parents speak English or not, and then we give them a solid education and we also give them a grounding in virtue that we think will stand them well, regardless of whatever religion they believe in. And a lot of parents agree with us. So we've never had a shortage. Enrollment has gone down since the mid 1960s for Catholic education, but it's not because we have a lack of people who wanna to go to school. We have, because we serve the poor, we have a lack of people who can afford to pay tuition. And there's a limit to how many philanthropic dollars we can serve. If we were free, like the public schools, um, we would be overrun with people. Yeah. And so the economics of a Catholic school is it cost us a lot more to run the Catholic school than people pay in tuition. We've tried to keep the tuition as reasonable as possible. Uh, and as a result, we're all endlessly uh, fundraising for any Catholic school. And uh, that's just part of what we do. But we also have a very strong commitment to community. And I think that's very attractive to a lot of parents as well. You're not just entering into a classroom, but you're entering a broader community of parents, of learners, of scholars, of teachers. And we take that seriously, which is a segue into a topic we'll probably talk about later is what happened during the COVID crisis, because that sense of community, that commitment to community is why we behaved in a different way than other school sectors. 
Well, let's talk about it now because, in fact, you know, I want to frame this for our listeners who have been thinking about other things during the pandemic. And in at the beginning in March, uh, myself included, there were many folks who study schools, policy wonks, et cetera, saying huge danger here. Catholic schools are going to close in large part because of that financial model that you described, that in too many places, Catholic schools were operating on a model where all comers were welcome, even if you couldn't pay full tuition, there wasn't enough philanthropy. And the speculation was what's going to happen in May, if parents can't can't make the last tuition payment, what's going to happen to those schools? What's going to happen if they can't stand up virtual learning? And indeed, we did see um, more than a hundred Catholic schools, mainly in urban centers, those that serve lower income families. Um, predominantly closed uh, prior to September this past school year. Um, but that wasn't the case in Boston. So talk to us about what enrollment has looked like now and how you guys have weathered this formidable storm. Yeah, sure. So uh, first of all, the, the, the opening line, as you recall, to uh, Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities is, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. So in our case, we reversed that saying, which the spring was the worst of times. And since then, since roughly the middle of July, it's been the best of times in many ways for us. And and I don't say that to diminish all the, the kind of the ravages of uh, COVID uh, across this area and across the country, but just from a question of kind of the future of Catholic schools. So we did take a very big hit because, and we actually, just as a matter of historical record, we closed our schools prior to the mayor of Boston closing schools and prior to the governor, Charlie Baker, closing schools statewide. So we could see that it was spiraling out of control and we didn't know enough at that moment on how it was transmitted and you know where this was all going to lead. So at an, you know, at that overused phrase, at an overabundance of caution, we closed the schools actually before everybody else. But at the same time, uh, we jumped right back in right away. So we closed the schools Friday around noontime. And then on Monday and Tuesday, we were doing remote instruction. But during that time period, what happened was economically, an awful lot of people lost their jobs. And uh, people who didn't lose their jobs had their hours reduced. And so the family finances, which were the premise for being able to pay tuition, got shattered for a lot of people. The Catholic Schools Foundation put up, uh, they normally do about nine to ten million dollars a year in scholarships, uh, but they put in more than a million dollars on top of that to try to mitigate the tuition uh, to help people pay tuition during this time period. But we did have schools close. We had nine schools close, two more that were run by religious orders, and literally the schools had so many people that could not afford to pay tuition. They in turn could not afford to pay their teachers going into the following year. So that was kind of our low point. And then looking forward to the fall, I had said to the Cardinal, uh, this Cardinal Sean O'Malley, that we could be forced, not because any of us wanted to, we were, you know, kind of ashen faced by how the economy was, you know, collapsing in this area, that we could be forced to close another two dozen schools in September. We never, uh, ever contemplate closing schools once school year starts. So it was pretty grim. And then in the middle of July, uh, and at that point, by early July, our enrollment was down by over 5,000 kids, our projected enrollment for the fall. So that would have been the largest enrollment drop in the history of the Archdiocese of Boston. 
so we could have had a really catastrophic fall. And then oddly, uh, the public school people decided that they were going to start late by three weeks because they needed more time to plan, which was kind of like it was ironic coming from uh, teachers who constantly ha have kids come up to them on an assignment that was posted two months earlier, uh, you know, begging for an extension on a project that everybody knew was due. Uh, I mean, everybody knew since the, you know, the middle of March that we had a lot of work to do before the fall, but they were behind for whatever reason. And then secondly, that when they opened, so-called, uh, that they were going to be remote. And it just, that message just clanged in the ears of an awful lot of parents. And I'm not judging them for that decision. Like I, we have, I've had to make decisions that people didn't agree with. I'm sure they have to make a lot of, you know, tough decisions other people don't agree with. But the effect of that from a parent perspective is they were hopping mad. And so our phones across 100 schools started literally when that hit the six o'clock news on July 15th, uh, our phones rang off the hook and they kept ringing all the way through the second and third week in October. And so we thought we were going to lose over 5,000 people. And then we gained 4,000 people uh, since July uh, 15th. So we're still down over a thousand kids for the year, but that frankly puts it in roughly the range of the average losses that Catholic education, Catholic schools across the country have had for a really long time. So we basically lived to fight another day. And so we gained probably 80% of the, that 4,000 were people who were uh, fleeing the public schools because they dearly wanted their kids to be in school. And so we concluded when, when Governor Baker announced in June, I think it was, that schools could reopen in the fall because we didn't know whether his health department would keep all the schools closed. And putting aside whether as a religious institution, we could have made a, you know, a Supreme Court case out of it. But in the end, he decided that all schools could open. In the case of Catholic schools, we never had to make a decision to open. Everybody involved from the Cardinal on down wanted the kids back in school. And the parents clearly did more than anybody because they saw the negative impact it was having on kids socially and emotionally and educationally because our system wasn't set up. Nobody's system was set up to basically run it kind of as Zoom University. And we did the best we could. And I think we did better than anybody else, but nobody thought it was ideal. And then from a sense of community, we felt really strongly that the kids had to get back with the teachers and with each other. And the parents are also part of community. They needed to be reunited, if you will. And then heading into the fall, what I really worried about was that every year you get new kids. And that's true of every sector, not just in entering grades, but people move and so forth. So the idea of having kids who had never met each other, had never met any of their classmates and had never met their teacher being on Zooms as their primary form of education. To me personally, I thought that was a horrifying outcome for those children. So in our case, as soon as we we told we could go, our focus was on how to do it, not whether to do it. The other school systems focused on whether they should do it. And it's just fundamentally, my argument is, when you believe that every child is created in the like, image and likeness of God, you just don't strand them. And so we just wouldn't do it. Now, if we were forced to do it, then, you know, we'd get into a, 
<laughs> a litigation, you know, we'd have to think about a bunch of other issues at that point. But it was we were not going to go down, you know, easily on that issue because we thought it was the right thing to do. I, so, I love that you drew that distinction, Tom, whether versus how. And, and I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I, I would could you paint real quickly for us, though, a picture of like just real brief of like what it looks like in a school <laughs> with kids and teachers in a building all together? Uh, you know, I mean, because people are thinking, OK, is it safe? It it's been safe, has it yeah. not? So I got uh, I got a lot of emails and phone calls and everything saying asking if I was going to go to the funeral of every single child that I killed off by opening the oh. schools. And so people were pretty, you know, people were pretty spun up. And I, I, I never thought badly of any of those people because I, I understood the emotions. And if it's your kid and all this stuff, a lot of these people were people that I, I knew were not from the Catholic school system. They were making a broader point. But but be that as it may, our position was. We were going to offer live instruction to everyone. And then if you would were, had anybody in your family who is medically compromised, we would live stream your child's classes so they could watch them at home. And furthermore, if you were just a nervous mom or dad and you just weren't quite ready to put them back in with a bunch of other kids because you were nervous about how this was going to play out, then keep them at home and we'll live stream the classes anyway, because you're the primary educator, your child. It's your child, not our child. And so that's ultimately a judgment that you have to make. And so I think we had kind of the best of both worlds. So anyone who didn't want to be there wasn't. Everybody wanted to be there was. And so the people who were in the school were extremely happy. And I frankly never thought we'd get as far as we did. I thought we would be shut down by some local health board or whomever. Uh, somewhere along the way here. But what happened was uh, pretty amazing, I think, is we found out by following the health protocols, which when they were the initial health protocols that came out, I was frankly horrified by. And then we and a bunch of other people had conversations with the governor and the governor's office and so forth. And he was, and his background is as CEO of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare. So he knows a lot about health, probably more than any governor in the country. But he had the humility to listen to people. And then his final set of regulations came out uh, or his health protocols. And we actually were delightfully surprised. We thought they were highly reasonable. And if we had done them ourselves, I don't think we could have done a better job. So people don't realize that, but technically they don't apply to our schools for religious reasons. But we imposed them on ourselves because we thought Governor Baker did a really good job balancing you know, all the considerations. And so we we basically implemented those with the religious fervor because we had a we were we took very seriously that parents were literally trusting their the lives of their children with us. And we didn't take that lightly at all. So we we followed the protocols. We were scrubbing the walls and the surfaces and all that stuff. Everybody had to wait, wear masks, whether they liked it or not. And people had kind of gotten used to it by the time September had rolled around. And we had separation. One of the funny things about Catholic schools is we do a lot of things. And I think a lot of things, right. But the one thing we, as a core execution thing is we teach children how to follow instructions like nobody else, right? So it's a very disciplined, structured environment. So we have nights, neat Catholic rows. Everybody faces forward. There's very little face-to-face -face contact because like, you know, and we don't have nuns like you used to have to enforce this, you know, 50, 60 years ago. 
Um, and so people, so people basically follow all the health protocols because we train children to follow instructions that their teachers give them and that their parents give them. And so we had very high levels of compliance and very few people disagreeing. And as a result, what we showed is when you follow the health protocols, people are safe. And when you don't follow them, they're not safe. So all of our cases, virtually all of our cases, are what I call outside-in cases. You caught it outside, you walk it into our school, we find out, we then quarantine you, right? You have an elevated temperature, whatever the symptom might be. Um, what everybody thought would happen or could happen is that the schools would be the place where all these people intersect and contaminate each other. And then the virus would go wild among children and teachers. That didn't happen. So right now we have counting adults and children, 35,500 people in our schools. We have three cases of in-school transmission. That's it. That is like, I don't even know. Okay, it's certainly you know, a very tiny fraction of 1%. Go outside the door of our schools, you have a tremendous number of cases. And it's come down a little, but it's still really, really high. And so that's going to come down, I think, very quickly as everybody gets vaccinated. So we just followed it um, you know, religiously, so to speak, uh, and it really worked. And then we did it week after week after week after week, maintaining fidelity to the protocols. And a lot of people have said, well, you had no cases, therefore, you know, why don't we get rid of the mask? What? And I'm going like, we have virtually no cases because we did follow the protocols, not because the protocols were dumb. The protocols made a lot of sense. And we would we would not change them until people are you have large scale vaccination because we think they've worked. And so now the parents who are nervous are sending their kids in school now. And a lot of the parents are relaxed. The teachers who are, you know, and it's a people talk about cops and fires is about being frontline workers. Well, teachers are, too, because they have all these kids in any year, not just this year. You always have kids coming in with runny noses and fevers and getting their teachers sick. I say that as the husband of a preschool teacher. It happens all the time. So, you know, they're sitting there knowing that they could get bombarded with all kinds of things. And they did it anyway out of a sense of commitment to the children in front of them. So I think the parents really appreciated the risk that teachers took. And thankfully, because we followed the protocols, there's been very little uh, risk to teachers inside of our building. So I firmly believe the safest place for a child in America is in a school following the health protocols. It's not being in the community, that's for sure. And so this thought that people, that, that if the kids were home, they'd be safer, I think that's a bunch of hooey. They're much safer in our buildings in a highly structured, disciplined environment. And we do structure and discipline like no one else. Mr. Superintendent, you've done a wonderful job of making a case for why Catholic schools matter. And you've also talked about the importance of resources in the public school system. Uh, they have tuition as well. We just call it per pupil uh, funding. And we know in private schools, money matters. So here's my question. A decade ago, uh, Pioneer published a private parochial school capacity survey in which 72% of Massachusetts parochial and private schools uh, reported that they would be willing to participate in a voucher program. In your view, what are the benefits for Massachusetts families and Catholic schools if the Commonwealth passed an education tax credit program? Yeah, so just just in, in terms, and you, you've been a long-term 
a warrior on the school choice issues. So whether it's a voucher, a scholarship, or it's a tax credit mechanism or education savings accounts. And when you were the commissioner in Florida, you know, like virtually everything that could be tried was tried in Florida, starting under Jeb Bush uh, and then going from there. So uh, I'm a huge fan of it's it's really simple. Even I have two children, but I have you know lots of friends who have more than that. And and you see if you're a parent that very often with the same gene pool, your kids will have dramatically different personalities, dramatically different learning abilities and how they learn. Their learning styles can vary from child to child. Once you accept that premise, a one size fits all approach to schooling doesn't work. So I don't understand why every single parent wouldn't understand that you need to have lots of options and lots of different ways to educate your children because they are all different and unique. And so I think anything that that accommodates that I'm in favor of. So I mean, even within the same school system, like a public school system, a charter school system, when I did a network of charter schools, most charter networks made exactly the same school multiple times over. We did lots of different models because I thought parents would want lots of different flavors of ice cream, so to speak. And that that would accommodate that there should be lots of different approaches, different ways to teach children. Um, and so what's missing is that if you are working class or low income, even middle class, like in a city like Boston or a city like New York or uh, you think of L.A., San Francisco, a lot of urban areas, you could be making a lot of money compared to somebody, say, in Kansas. Uh, but you're not living a large life uh, if you're making a middle class existence in a place like Boston, where it's extraordinarily expensive to live or anywhere like in the New York metro market or Chicago, et cetera. So I think there's a need for what's missing is the fun is aid to help those people send their kids to the school that they know would be the best fit for their child. Because there are a lot of parents who are going through the grief of knowing that the school their child is in is actually not the best fit. But they simply the only thing they lack is the financial capacity to get their kid into the right school for their for their child, whether it be a son or a daughter. And so that's why I favor every single form of school choice possibly that you could imagine. I spent eight years of my life advocating in New York and then in D.C. for a tax credit scholarship. Uh, you had the experience in Florida of seeing a front row seat on the benefits of the tax credit scholarship they have there. There are now, I think, over 100,000 kids who are receiving scholarships in Florida <clears throat> going to schools that you know, that 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 program made possible. And they've raised, you know, last time I checked was a few years back, they were raising over six $650 million. I'm sure it's even higher now in scholarship dollars because the tax credit uh, gave an incentive for more companies uh, to donate money. So I'm in favor of a, uh, a tax credit, what I advocated for New York and in DC, a tax credit that both for individual and corporate taxes encourages philanthropy. And I think there's enough philanthropy out there with the right incentive to uh, flood the market with scholarships. There's a scholar, uh, Dr. Ben Scafferty at uh, Kennesaw State University who recently published an article about uh, tax credits in Georgia and the fact that uh, it's actually having a financial benefit for a number of parties. It's not destroying public education. It's not depleting schools. Public school children have not lost an opportunity to go to school because of this. And so it's something that we often hear from people who don't like it, but you've made a very good point about what it means for families. Let me pivot to a, another question. 
a key element of the historic successes in Massachusetts public schools that they've enjoyed for a long time has been a commitment to high stakes testing and its graduation requirement. As Catholic schools seek to measure students' academic achievement, should they develop a Catholic-centric, uh, you know, I guess Massachusetts state test for accountability or their own religiously focused SAT for college placement? Yeah, we're looking at a variety of options on that front. But my predecessor, Kathy Mears, who's now um, interim president of the National Catholic Educators Association, uh, her signal achievement was putting in a testing system for the archdiocese for its K-8 schools or nursery through eighth grade schools. And so every uh, couple things are part of that. One is three times a year, our students are tested both for uh, gain scores and also proficiency scores. That did not exist uh, before Kathy put that in, I think, three or four years ago. Um, so that's been a great kind of leap forward in terms of people managing around data and understanding that it's not about what kids are taught, it's about what kids actually learn, what they actually master. And you can't do that without assessments. And so when I was running a charter school network, we were obsessive about creating a data loop that at first a lot of the teachers were concerned because it makes transparent whether uh, the results in a particular classroom are sterling or not. And that can be frightening at first for teachers, but we made clear and eventually people got comfortable with it that we're trying to give you real-time information. So at the end of the year, you don't find out that a bunch of kids wiped out on the test, but you know in time that you can fix your instruction. And so sometimes it would help us identify which kids needed remedial help. Other times it let us uh, find out when a particular lesson plan just simply wasn't working. And the teachers were at first uh, hesitant about that, but once they realized that every teacher is committed to doing the best they possibly can. Uh, no matter what stage of their career they're in. And when they got a chance to do like a do-over and then to compare, like if they didn't, you know, knock it out of the park one day, but the classroom next to them did, it then led to collaboration among teachers. So I don't view, you know, all of these tests as kind of this, there's been this myth perpetuated uh, by some people. That it's all these high stake tests that are, you know, kind of dehumanizing children or whatever. I think it's it's different. It's actually giving a feedback loop so we can find out whether the children are actually learning. And if they're not learning, then we have to fix that right away. And I think it's important to have annual benchmarks, but it's also important to have indicators throughout the year. So the way the governance structure of our diocese, we have a lot less direct authority over high schools. So that's gonna be more of a collaborative conversation, but it was uh, after long conversations with school pastors and other people, it was done by, uh, what we call in church parlance, a, a cardinal's decree. And uh, so th that's the way we approached it. Uh, it's one of the reasons uh, in the preparation of Kara's book, or the book that Kara co-authored, uh, that they had availability of data to judge how we were doing, uh, because we do have data that a bunch of years ago we didn't have at all. And that's so important. Let me thank you for the great work you're doing, because leadership matters. Um, always glad to celebrate uh, National Catholic Week. And the fact that it actually coincides with Black History Month, it's worth noting that many of the Catholic schools uh, took a stand during the era of segregation to actually open their doors and to create integrated opportunities, not only for students, but also for some early 
uh, priests, some who would later become bishops, uh, particularly from the Sacred Hearts uh, School in Lake Charles, Louisiana. So there's an aspect about this that we often don't mention, but also the fact that Catholic schools have helped create uh, a portion of the black middle class, even though Catholic schools educate a smaller segment of the black population. So keep up the good work. Thank you. I appreciate that. And one, one example of that, uh, and it's it's not an African-American, but in terms of uh, minority families, is uh, Sonia Sotomayor attended Blessed Sacrament in the Bronx. Uh, and so there are a number of prominent people who have given credit to the uh, having the experience in Catholic school really setting them up for success in life in addition to a, uh, a life of faith. So uh, it's had an immeasurable impact across the country and across the world. And we're proud of the Catholic school tradition. And we're proud that uh, we extend the opportunities of a Catholic education to non-Catholics as well. Well, Tom Carroll, I think that our listeners um, are probably very excited not only to hear that, but also to to get this sort of jam-packed history and look at the current landscape of Catholic schooling, um, you know, not just in Massachusetts, but also you've provided us with really important insight into what it's been like to successfully run schools during this insane, <laughs> insane time. I was going to say unprecedented, but I'm getting really tired of that word. It's just, it's, um, it's, you know, most of us have never seen this. Thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you for being with us today. And I, I personally being, you know, just down the street from you hope to see you, uh, face to face at some point in the near future. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Jordan. And as always, listeners, we're going to close it out with the tweet of the week after great conversation with uh, Superintendent Tom Carroll. And this one, very um, apropos for Gerard's story of the week, it's from CNN. And it says, the tweet says, Carter G. Woodson, considered a pioneer in the study of African-American history, is given much of the credit for Black History Month. Meet the man who created Black History Month. So if you go to CNN.com, friends, you can actually meet the man. And it's great. It's wonderful. It's worth checking out. We encourage you to do so. All right. And listeners, be sure to join us next week when we are going to be speaking with Professor Valerie Boyd. She is the Charlene Hunter-Galt Distinguished Writer in Residence and Associate Professor of Journalism at the University of Georgia and the definitive biographer of Zora Neale Hurston. I love the works of Zora Neale Hurston. It takes me back to my English literature days. Um, I am I'm very uh, excited for this. So Gerard, um, try not to keep living this day. We're going to get out of it. We're going we're gonna to get out of this day. We're going to get out of this year, no matter what the groundhog says. Yes, I don't care what the groundhog says. Yeah, darn groundhog. Okay, well, until next week, take care of yourself. Take care. Bye-bye.